This week, my guest is Cynthia Patton. She is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. She continues to serve as the founder and president of Patton Leadership Consulting, a contracting company that supports Army training initiatives and provides military-proven team building and leadership training and consulting to small businesses. She spent most of her career in the reserves, but was activated regularly and often called up more than 150 days a year, while the typical reservist only is activated, on average, about 50 days a year. It was really interesting getting to talk to Cynthia about her experience of serving from Desert Storm and through September 11th. It's another great interview, so let's get started. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, it was 1977 and I was a freshman at the Georgia State University in Atlanta, Georgia. I come from a big family, six kids. My sister, my big sister lived in Atlanta and she was already going to school there. One day we needed money for rent. And one day she said, you know, if we join ROTC, we'll get $100 a month each. And back then that was a lot of money. And I said, what do you have to do? She says, oh, you just have to show up and march a little bit and do some calisthenics, go, you know, go rafting. So we both joined. And for her, it was just a way to earn some money for a couple months. And for me, it became a career. So you got the stipend or the $100 a month just for trying out ROTC? You didn't have to be on contract or anything like no, I, that? No, we, we had to be on contract. Uh, so we, I, they sent me off to uh, Fort Knox for the summer. And then I came back and signed the contract and, and was an MS3, even though I was a, still a freshman or sophomore, I guess, in college. Wow, that's kind of cool that you just needed rent money and had this opportunity and then it kind of changed your whole life, right? It did. It did change my whole life. So you did ROTC. Was there any challenges that you faced while within ROTC? No, I I guess it was a very idyllic time in my life. We were lucky. Cadre at Georgia State were a whole lot of Vietnam veterans. So it was, like I said, 77, 78 They weren't that far off of their time in Vietnam. And so they had such heightened awareness about what it really took to make somebody a good officer. And so they didn't play around. They made us do, they stretched us, you know, they made us do anything and everything you could think of. They were hard on us, but we had great opportunities. We got to go to the ranger camp in Dahlonega and do rappelling. We got to go to Fort Benning and use the ranges. We got to go to Fort Stewart and ride in tanks. All their, you know, reach with other people in the military. Some of them were SF guys, rangers, infantry. So they were hard on us, but a lot of us that graduated or that were in that course with them went on to have really successful careers. 
Yeah, that's really cool. That's pretty. I remember when I was a cadet and I got to go on base visits and it was really exciting to get to see like what I was working for and where like what it was going to lead to. It was really so it just reminds me of that. You talked about your time. So where was your first assignment to? Well, uh, in the middle of college in ROTC, I got married to a soldier. So he got stationed in Alaska and I hadn't gotten to finish college yet or ROTC. So we had to really jump through some hoops to figure out how to do that. But the University of Alaska worked with me. Their ROTC department in Fairbanks allowed me to I actually was like the first person in the state of Alaska to be a simultaneous membership program cadet. And they put me in the Alaska National Guard and I drilled and I took virtual classes. Back then it was they'd send you books and assignments and you'd do them and send them back. It was way ahead of anything that people are doing today. So somehow I muddled through and finished ROTC and got commissioned, early commissioning they call it. I didn't have my degree. But back then you could get commissioned. And then my husband talked to the commanding general and he wangled an assignment for me right there in Alaska. I was going to have to go to Germany, but when I was away at Officer Basic, they were able to work it out for joint domicile so I could come back to Alaska. So Fort Rich, 172nd Infantry Brigade. Were you, you dual military your whole career? No, because I married a guy a lot older than me. He was like 17 years older than me. So two years after I was a a lieutenant, he retired. Because, you know, you can do your 20 and get out at 40-something years old. So he retired, and he wanted to move back to his home state of Mississippi. So I got off active duty after three years and followed him home to south and did most of the rest of my career in the reserves except for several activations later. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. What was it like to go from Georgia to Alaska? Oh my God. I was a kid. I was newly married. I was 20 years old and it was, it was hard because back then we didn't have FaceTime and internet, none of that. We literally wrote letters, made phone calls on Sunday to our parents, which cost like, if I remember correctly, $30 to talk for like 20 minutes. And again, back in the 1970s, $30 was a lot. I think my lieutenant pay was only like, I want to say 900 a month or something. But we were able to bring a lot of our family members up to Alaska, which was wonderful and life altering for some of them as well. My younger sister Denise is right now today, president of the University of Alaska Technical College in Anchorage in part because of her memories of coming and spending a summer with me when she was a teenager. Wow, that's kind of cool that it had such a lasting impact and opened not only doors for you, but for the rest of your family. So that's really neat. After Alaska, you guys moved to the South and you switched from active duty to reserves. What was that transition like? It was interesting. I did do that one other year at Fort Polk in the 5th Infantry Division, my last year on active duty before we moved over to Mississippi. But when I got to Mississippi, I wanted to be in the reserves and somebody contacted me. I guess there was a list that came out of people coming off active duty. So I was a first lieutenant, kind of a senior first lieutenant. And some guy contacted me from the reserves in Mississippi and said, hey, we have this new unit we're standing up. 
called the 412th Replacement Detachment in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and it needs a commander. It's an AG unit. And I said, sweet, I'll take it. <laughs> Little did I know. I mean, you know, standing up a unit, it was a challenge. It was definitely a challenge. And I came into the unit and they had, a bunch of them had been reservists for years and we're talking post-Vietnam era NCOs, rift officers, you know, young people who didn't know much about the military. They were a, dare I say, motley crew. And I came in straight off active duty and I wasn't going to put up with any nonsense. And I said, okay, we're falling out for PT. And they're like, what? We're falling out for drill and ceremony. What? We're going to inventory the chow hall. What? They weren't liking it. So I might not have been the most popular commander ever. But again, I'm proud to say that some of my soldiers, many of my soldiers went on to the enlisted people, went on to make sergeant major. And I had two of my soldiers that made general officer. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I've heard that like the shift from active duty to reserves is a difficult one sometimes. It's just a different way of doing something. But it's interesting that you went from being active duty to being the commander of the reserves unit. So you had a lot of influence to bring the active duty side into the reserves. Right. And it was so far before 9-11. You know, the world changed. The whole military changed after 9-11. And everything that we had always said needed to happen to fully integrate Guard, Reserve, and, and active duty and be more fair a lot of it happened after 9-11. But back then, you know, we had ALOs and COMPOs and all these resourcing discrepancies based on missions. And you were treated really crappy sometimes when you took your reserve or guard unit somewhere. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I don't think it's so bad today, though. I think it's a lot of different mindset. Yeah, I think that, like you said, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and like mobilizing the reserve and guard units kind of change. I deployed with a guard unit and I was in awe of their willingness to be guardsmen and then to give a year of their life to go overseas and then go back to being a civilian slash guardsman again. And it just kind of boggled my mind that the sacrifice they were making and that their families were making and how challenging the dynamics of doing that are. Yeah. And you get, you're expected to, to hold a lot of the same standards but without the luxury of 24-7 dedicated time to get to, to those standards. You don't have the military dependent family, the on-post housing, the full-time medical treatment. You know, you don't have any, you don't have any medical treatment. You don't have any benefits medical. I mean, they do today, but they make them pay really high for them. Their premiums are really high. So it was a huge challenge in balance because you had to continue your education on your own dime. Well, a lot, you know, we got some GI Bill usually, but you had to do it on your own time. Again, most active duty folks, some of them are even given years to go be in a master's program and wear a uniform every day and just work on their master's. I had to command a battalion, work on my master's degree, run a farm, handle my family. Tough. Yeah, that's a lot. So you were doing reserves like the traditional route of one week in a month and two weeks a year, or was it a more of a requirement than that? I don't know why or how, but it always ended up that I was always the one that got picked or asked or tasked to run an exercise or deploy on the Advon 
So I had a nickname. They called me the Man Day Queen because I did so many extra days. You know, they had these things called man days where you could, they could put orders in or something, or the unit had an allocation of them and they could use them to bring you on to do work. And I was almost always in a large unit, like a theater level unit. And there's a lot of work to be done behind the scenes and the civilians and the few active duty people they had, AGR or whatever they call it these days, couldn't always get it done. So I would say I more likely did about... So instead of 50 days a year, I'd do like 150. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot more requirement. And that's what I've heard from reserves and guardsmen is that the like two, the two days a month and or the week in the month and the two weeks, that's just the beginning. (laughs) Because like you said, there's so much work that needs to be done to get and they have limited amount of people and limited amount of time. And so they have to use more. So how are you able to balance your home life and your military responsibilities? So, of course, it was such a blessing to have a retired sergeant major as my husband. So if anybody knew about it, he knew about it. And he just 100% supported me. We had a son after 10 years of marriage. We together had a son and he had children from another marriage. But when I was gone, he was such a great dad. You know, he was there. And then later in my life, I think probably when my son was about 10, my parents moved to Mississippi and we built a place on our farm for him, them and my husband's father with a duplex. So I had grandparents, other generation living there to help out. And they did help out. So, you know, it's the extended family made a big difference. You know, that family support is, I think, like active duty military kind of miss out on that because we are always moving and then we always are like starting over and it makes it really challenging to have the community or the family support. So it makes sense that you were able to, you guys weren't moving and then you were able to add that layer of support into your lives, which you definitely needed. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm excited to share that I'm going to be part of Freedom Sisters Media's new magazine, Freedom Sisters Magazine. It's the first premier digital magazine app for women veterans. There are 28 women veterans contributing as writers, and it is launching in January of 2021. Freedom Sisters is a leading media company to amplify women veterans, and Freedom Sisters shares our sister stories, service, and successes. The Freedom Sisters magazine delivers insight to new ideas, products, and opportunities and will showcase insightful stories about women veterans. If you love Women of the Military podcast, but now you want to get a digital magazine app to get more content about what women veterans are doing and have done and are doing within the community, be sure to go to the show notes so you can find out more about Freedom Sisters magazine. And now let's get back to the show. So you were in the mil- or in the reserves during Desert Storm. Were you guys activated or did you play a role in Desert Storm? My unit got put on alert. I was with the 377th Theater. It used to be called TACOM. Now they call it TSC, Theater Support Command. It used to be the theater. I don't know what the AACOM stood for, but you know what I'm saying. Out of New Orleans, I worked in the AG section over there. So we got put on alert, but 
we never got called up because they used a much smaller units. They never did get to that level where they where our uh, our sent Third Army or whoever wanted to call in large commands, which they did after 9-11. However, my stepson, who was in the military, in the National Guard, and had a son who was, I think Shepard was probably five. He was divorced and had custody of his child. And so when he got deployed, father and I took the grandson, you know, he signed him over, whatever you call that. And we had him for a year almost living in our house with us. So I played a role, but a much different role. It's still an important role, and I think a role that people often don't realize people have to play, especially when, like, there's family dynamics and you have to use that family support plan and reach out farther than just, like, what people typically think of, like, the wife or the husband to take care of the kid. Been to be a great time, though, because that grandson, that step-grandson of mine, who is today in his 30s, We're very close, and I'm sure it's because he lived in my home for that time. Yeah, I bet. I bet that is. What was it like to be on alert? Were you guys kind of spinning up to get ready to go and then, like, waiting to see what would happen, or how did that all work out? I do remember that it was a a time of a lot of uncertainty. I think that, you know, it was a crazy time. I think we did do some loading of equipment and, you know, some planning. Pretty much remember us having to go in and put together annexes and whatnot to a potential op plan. I do remember that. My older brother, David, was a captain in the National Guard in Alabama, and he definitely went. So my mom was happy, I guess, that two of us didn't have to. But David ended up in Saudi Arabia. He was an ammo guy, an officer, and he... He ended up staying and helping draw down the ammunition in Kuwait. Remember when there was that explosion and all that ammo got damaged in in, uh, Kuwait City at Camp Doha? He was there for that. I was really young when Desert Storm happened, so I don't remember most of it. I remember us watching a lot of it. We had a, I I, want to say we had a satellite dish in those, what year was that? That was 1993 or something? What, what, What year was that? 91? I, I thought it was like 89.90. Yeah, I want to say we had a satellite dish and that we were able to get news on the satellite. And I know my husband was just 24-7 watching the news. Yeah, it's crazy to think. Yeah, I was I was really young. I was like four or five when it happened, so I don't really remember yeah. any of it. And my family didn't have any military connections, so I don't even know if... My parents were watching the news more than just yeah. what was regular because we didn't have anyone really connected to be paying attention in a way. Right. I don't want to skip anything, but I was thinking <laughs> what happened between like Desert Storm and then September 11th. Were there any moments from that time that stood out or like experiences that you wanted to share? I kind of seem to have been lucky a lot of times in my career because I went from the 377th TSC to a newly, so Desert Storm happened and Third Army, which was in charge of the Middle East or whatever, figured out that they had a shortage of things they needed in order to go to war. And one of those things was a personnel command. And one of those things was a medical command. And one of those things was a finance command. So they stood up, third PERSCOM, third MEDCOM, third FINCOM, and I was 
in the very beginning, first people ever assigned to third PERSCOM, and they put it in Jackson, Mississippi. And you think to yourself, why did they put it in Jackson, Mississippi? Well, there was a PA battalion, personnel and admin battalion in Starkville, Mississippi. And then we had that 412th down in Pascagoula, which was a replacement company. And there was some units in central Alabama. So geographically, Jackson was not a bad place to put it. So we started right after Desert Storm with a mindset of war. What was it like? What went wrong? Half the people in my unit had served in Desert Storm. They were in postal units, in you know, doing casualty reporting, doing all the go-to stuff you got to do assigned to other units. And they came back to the reserve unit with the mindset of, by God, if we have a chance, we're going to make this right next time. And literally, from the time it stood up, that's where I'm getting the, the 1991 or two from in my head. That's when Third Perscom started. So for those 10 years between then and when we ended up going to 9-11, all we did was train for war. We, and we started an exercise called Silver Scimitar. And we went to Bright Stars in Egypt. And we had our commander fought for us to have desert uniforms. And it was interesting. We had linguists that would help us translate stuff in Arabic. So... By the time it happened, we were ready. Yeah, and I served from 2007 to 2013, and a lot of the training was getting getting in mop gear and like doing different exercises. And for a long time, I was so confused on why we were doing this. And then when I started learning more about Desert Storm, and then I realized, oh, all the exercises were based off like what we learned from that experience. And then we used them and adapted them to what we were doing and then continued to use them and modify them as the war went on. And it was really interesting hearing your story about like how much focus there was on training for the next war. And that makes sense going through training to go to Afghanistan and how much of it was focused on Desert Storm. Yeah. I mean, it's all you have really history. You only have history to uh, direct your future. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting how much I think sometimes people think Desert Storm didn't really have a big effect because it was so short. And But the more that you like learn the history of Desert Storm, like from the people over there, and it wasn't short to them because they didn't know that it was going to end quickly or how long it was going to take. And then the effects coming home and how it shaped the military, just like September 11th changed the military. Desert Storm had a huge impact. Absolutely. Each one does. Vietnam had an impact. You know, each one has an impact because it shifts and changes. You know, so many of the things that they learned how to do in Vietnam go lighter and, you know, deal with insurgencies and all those things. They came full circle and we had to deal with them again. That's so true. So when September 11th happened, what happened in your unit and how did it change what you guys were doing? So I was a lieutenant colonel. It's a, a theater-level command. There's a lot of lieutenant colonels, a lot of full colonels, a lot of sergeant majors. We had about 350 people in the unit, I'd say. I had been the chief of staff as a major, which was unheard of, but the guy that was the commander said that he wanted me, so I was it. Again, one of those times when I was not that popular, but I think I, I had spent six months on active duty the summer before September 11th. And I was in charge of the personnel database section, and we were working on a prototype 
Microsoft Office database we were creating that we thought we could take somewhere and track entry in and out of a theater. And I had a warrant officer and a couple sergeants that were coders, you know, people that understood stuff like that. And I literally spent six months before September 11th on active duty. In fact, I was packing my apartment in Jackson, Mississippi that day to drive back home to, to Gulfport and come off active duty on September 11th. And I got up that morning and turned the television on and all hell was breaking loose. And I called my husband and I said, this shit's going down. <laughs> and I said, you know, this is terrorism. This is terrorism, you know. And he says, I bet you're not going to get to come home. And commander called me and said, I said, what should I do? And he says, well, go on home to Gulfport. So I went on home to Gulfport. And about four days later, I got called and said, we're, we're putting together a short list. We got to send a detachment. We got to be prepared to send a detachment, an early entry module. And we want you to lead it. So by, I started having to go to New Orleans, to the SCIF, to the secret section, and plan tip fids of which other units we would take with us and work on op plans and whatnot. We did that for the month of October. Right before Thanksgiving, me and three guys got orders and, and had to do a deployment ceremony and leave and go to Fort Benning. So it was interesting out of a unit of 350 that I was one of four that went. So we went to work for Third Army, and we did exactly what we had been doing for the last six months. We took our little database, our laptops, and we started tracking the people coming in and out of the theater. That's crazy that you were doing that for six months leading up like to the day of September 11th. Yeah, it's all, it was almost like a serendipity, you know, like a a pre-planned destiny thing. Yeah, that's so crazy. How old was your son when all this happened? He was 12. Okay. Yeah, he was 12 when I deployed. He was, yeah, 12. And by that time, your your parents and your husband's dad yes. were living, so you had that support to still. Yeah. And then how long were you deployed for? A year, the first time, yeah. Till October of the following year. Not quite a year. And then you said the first time, so you went back. <laughs> yeah. So then I stay, I stayed all the way through October in, in Kuwait. Did get to see my family in July. I got lucky. I got to go to, to Atlanta on a TDY. They sent me back home to go to St. Louis to Arperson and talk to the reserve command about problems we were having with accountability and stuff. So I got lucky, and they sent me home for TDY, so I got to see my, my family for a few days. But I got off active duty October, late October, and January something, I got orders again to go to South Carolina to a personnel group in Fort Jackson that needed a high-ranking person who actually was an AG officer because they had people in slots that weren't even qualified. And since I was, quote unquote, a war veteran, they, what is the word when they assign you, with you without your permission or whatever? What's that word called? General of the military. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's, there's a term for it when they just unilaterally reassign yeah. you to another slot. So I got sent in January of 2002, it would be, I guess. Was no, it 2003? three. Yeah. Three. February, 
January of three to shape up this personnel group and get them ready to go. And their commander had a broken leg. Their 06 commander had a broken leg. So he couldn't participate in anything either or go. So again, I worked, we lived in barracks and it was a, a cluster. I'm not an elitist officer person or whatever, but I was in a barracks open bay, basically living with the entire group of women in the unit from E3 up, sharing group showers with them. And, you know, so it was quite humbling. There was no privacy or rank determinations or anything. You know, we were just thrown in there together and we trained and did all the stuff you do getting ready to mob out. I tried to get their equipment ready and I tried to, I got some people to procure us some laptops and cell phones and stuff I knew we would need when we hit the ground over there. And again, they only decided to send an ad Vaughn and it was me and five guys, four guys, I guess me and five other men in the unit. They sent us on, a, on an ad Vaughn and we showed up at Camp Arif John in the midst of the mass, mass hysteria in April. I believe it was. That's when I guess they had already started going up into Iraq in April. But we didn't stay long because it changed so rapidly and they it all happened so fast. And they go, oh, well, we're not going to have mass casualties and we're not going to need millions of people and we're not going to have all this stuff we need. So go back home. And within three to three weeks, I think we were back in South Carolina and they demobbed us. Wow, that's crazy. I guess prepare for the worst, and then when you don't need it, then that's a good thing. Yeah. That's crazy. And you mentioned you were one, a female with five guys, and were there lots of times throughout your career where you were the only woman in the room? All the time. So much of the time. Yeah. 90% of the time. So was that a challenge that you felt, or was there pressure on you, or did you just, was that just part of your life, and you just... Went with it. At the time, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so I just went with it. Now, as I'm older and I can reflect back and I've started a business and the business model includes really focusing on women in leadership. It's interesting now when I reflect back on it, if I'd only known way back then what I know now, you know, but I didn't. It hardened me as a person. It made me, you know, distrustful and not unemotional, but I would hide my emotions and it made me be always be perceived as being a, too hard and too unapproachable and all those things, which by nature, I'm really not. And I've, as a retiree, I've been able to shift back to be the person that I really would rather be, which is a much more giving and caring and empathetic person. But that's why I try to pass on now to women in the military coming up, you know, things that lessons I learned and different approaches that I would have taken had I known what I know now. Yeah. So let's dive into that because I know there's women listening who are in the military. So what advice would you give them as they go or or even young women who are looking to join the military? What advice would you give them as they're beginning their military career or as they're continuing their military career? Well, you have to know that There's really probably, you know, it's so different now, though. They have so many different opportunities. Thankfully, I think a lot of the stuff that was going on that was so negative when I was in, a lot of it's been sort of stripped away. 
you know, there's a lot more women that rise up to much more positions of authority and get all get more opportunities to go to all these different training and make it through ranger school and make it through. But still, just to try to know themselves and try to be true to themselves. And there's really nothing they can't achieve if they want it. Just ask, you know, don't take no for an answer sometimes. If if you want an opportunity, fight for it and know that you bring true value to the team because I'm a firm believer that the military is a better place today than it was 20 or 30 years ago because women have made it a better place. You know, we have come in and changed the perspective on what is or is not acceptable for families, for the life that families live in the military now. I I think it's better. Yeah, I agree. I think that the impact of women being in the military and even I think the cultural shift of opening all jobs to women, because when I was in the Air Force, there was no job that I couldn't do that I knew of. I didn't feel... Some of the women who I've talked to who are in the army and like the infantry and those issues, I didn't feel that kind of struggle when I was in the Air Force because I believed as just a lieutenant that I could do anything. And I think that is a big deal and it changes the culture and it takes time, but it really changes how women are looked at and how women look at themselves because the sky's the limit. They can do anything. Exactly. And I I always, when I talk to to groups, women's groups these days, I talk to them about, we talk about the current events like gender equality, pay equality, pay equity. And I say, man, you know, do not dismiss the thought that you're lucky as heck. The military has had pay equity since day one. There's never been a woman who's received less of a salary because she was a woman. You know, lieutenant's a lieutenant, sergeant's a sergeant. You get exactly paid the same. And that's big. Yeah, it is. I know when they were first talking about it, I was like, but I get paid the same as my male counterparts because, you, like you said, the military, it pays you based on your rank, not your gender. And Yep. The one and only civilian job I ever held. I mean, I've been a defense contractor and then I've owned my own business. But the one and only go in, get hired, work in a job, go nine to five, come home, you know, that kind of a job. I I lost that job because I raised concerns about the fact that I was a veteran with three years active duty and a bachelor's degree, and I was getting paid almost 50% less than a young kid they hired in to sit next to me in the cubicle next to me. And it was bad. That was an eye opener. And and actually, when I left that job, is when I started my first home business. So I went home and started something called Choice Business Services. I worked out of my home teaching people computers and writing resumes and doing things because I wanted the work-life balance. I wanted control over my own destiny. I wanted to pay myself what I thought I was worth. So I guess because I came from an environment where there was no pay inequity, it really was something I couldn't live with. Yeah, that makes sense because, yeah, it's all about that mindset and it changes how you think about yourself and what you deserve. And then when you don't get the same pay, you're like, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go somewhere else. I want to talk a little bit about your book that you got to write a chapter for leading from the middle with 12 senior military women leaders. Can we talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? Sure. Um, I have a company and, and we have a contract here at Fort Leavenworth. And one of my contractors that works for me. Her name is Malia Wiley. She's a retired lieutenant colonel. 
And one of her best friends in the world was Lila Holly. They were battle buddies, you know, great friends. And one day she said to me, you know, you ought to call Lila because you guys are, she just started her own business called Camouflage Sisters and you guys are tracking on the things that you do and want to do and, you know, your philosophies. I think Lila's a retired warrant officer. So that was about five years ago. And I called Lila and we had a talk for about an hour. And at the end of it, Lila said, you know, I've been wanting to, I've already published two books and I've been wanting to publish a third book all about leadership. And I'd love it if you'd do a chapter for me. Now, at the time, her uh, organization, I think, was 100% African-American veterans, female veterans. But maybe because of me and some other women she started coming in contact with, uh, Alexandria Santiago and a few other women, she decided to open it up to anyone. And I agreed to be in that book. And it took them a little bit to get that one launched. It was a little bit of a challenge for her as she gathered up the other authors. But we did get it published last year. And you know how life brings you full circle. One of the other authors is Colonel Varnado, Sheila Varnado, who was the third army G1 that I worked for in Kuwait. And she's from Mississippi. And we hadn't seen each other and talked to each other for a decade almost. And then we got to come together as co-authors in this book and meet up again. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. And I'll have a link to the sh- link to the book in the show notes. So if people want to get it, they can find it there. And then I also interviewed Lila. So you can find her story on the podcast as well. So if you want to hear more about what Camo- Camouflage Sisters is doing and how it all started. And that's another great episode to check out. Did I miss anything from your time in the military and what you're doing today? Only maybe just a little more about what I am doing today. 11 years ago, I started Patent Leadership Consulting, and we have a pretty nice contract that we work with the Army to do what they call Combined Arms Training Strategies, or CATS. And we work with the Digital Training Management System, do some software stuff. But then on the other side of my business, I have something called She Leads 365, and it's focused on women in leadership and how women handle the work-life balance challenges of leading in all aspects of their life 365 days a year. And that's a movement that I started because I lived it and I just wanted to be able to pay it forward and provide some good learning environments and situations for other women. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'll put links to that in the show notes as well so people can get connected and learn more about it. I know I need to go do more research and check out those links. (laughs) Okay. We have a whole website, sheleads365.com, a separate website. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I have one last question, and you touched on it a little, but I'm going to ask it again just to see if you give a different answer. What advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? I would say... Go out there and be strong and be selfless and be empathetic and caring. Bring all the traits that a woman can bring to a team and you can do anything you want. Yeah, it's so true. Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your insight and your leadership. I've really enjoyed getting to learn more about what it's like to be in the reserves and to go back and forth from reserves to active duty and the sacrifices that reservists have to make that sometimes we don't hear about. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for 
listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support. Thank you.